welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas, and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. Have you ever had any training in communication, in how to speak or how to give presentations or how to argue your work, your ideas or defend your thesis? My guess is that just about everyone listening here will have answered yes. But have you ever had any training in how to listen? I know I haven't. And I'm guessing that many of you will also be saying, no, you haven't. Which is strange because listening is one of the the most important skills we can bring to our work, not just as leaders or supervisors, but also as colleagues and friends. And if ever there was a time when we needed better listeners, it's now as a way of engaging with an increasingly polarised world as well. So I thought this could be a great topic to kickstart the new series of the Changing Academic Life podcast series. In some ways, it sort of connects with the last podcast uh, that was released in June 21 with Michael Bungay-Stanya, where he talked about the power of being curious and or staying curious longer and asking great questions. And there's sort of like a precondition to that as well, because it, these sorts of strategies about being curious and asking great questions rely on a really strong foundation of good listening. So I thought that talking about listening could help connect us with the rest of the series, like how we might listen to the new conversations that we hear. And it can, it can connect with how we might show up with our colleagues and with our students. I'm really grateful, therefore, to be able to bring to you this conversation with Oscar Trimboli. Oscar is an author of the book called How to Listen, Discover the Hidden Key to Better Communication, and it's a really comprehensive book about listening in the workplace. He also hosts an Apple award-winning podcast called Deep Listening, and he's a sought-after keynote speaker, so I was really privileged and grateful that he agreed to speak with me. So I'm doing the conversation with him in two parts. In part one of our conversation here today, we talk about things like why listening is so important and the cost of loss not listening. And interestingly, the difference between a quest and a mission and how that relates to being much more open to listening to the ideas of others. He talks about something called the 125-900 rule and how to listen so that we can ask great questions that can advance the knowledge in the room, which I think is particularly relevant for us in our academic context. And we leave you on a cliffhanger about what are the five levels of listening, and we'll be discussing those in part two that will be coming out next. So enjoy this conversation with Oscar Trimboli. Oscar, thank you so much for joining me. Why I'm really wanting to talk to you is your whole mission around listening, which I find really fascinating because we're, I think, 
we so often hear about talking and presenting and presenting arguing ideas and this notion of listening and you know so what's behind your mission to create a hundred million deep listeners in the world uh, I call it a quest and I make it distinct from a mission I think some missions have kind of military overtones or some concept of conquest. Uh, for me, questing is uh, a vast curiosity to go to galaxies that are really unexplored. And it started in a boardroom, in a budget discussion. It was a 90-minute meeting. My leader said at the 20-minute mark, I need to see you immediately after this meeting. I was certain she was about to fire me for something. I had no idea what I did. And as I closed the door, because the meeting finished early, about 20 minutes early, um, so there's a little commercial break for what we'll talk about later on. If you're listening well, um, big meetings go shorter, um, but we'll cover that off shortly. So I close the door as everybody leaves a video conference between Sydney, Seattle and Sydney, and we had 18 people in our Sydney boardroom in this meeting. And as I walked across back to sitting next to Tracy, she said to me, as I was walking back, you have no idea what you did at the 20-minute mark. And I go, I'm definitely getting fired and I have no idea why. And then I sat down and she said, if you could code the way you listen, you could change the world. And in that moment of profound listening on her part, noticing how I was listening at the 20-minute mark, the only thing, Gerald, then going through my head was, I hadn't been fired. And all, all, this, all this money that I thought um, had evaporated from my bank account in the uh, 50 minutes from the 20-minute mark to the 70-minute mark, um, I, it all miraculously went back in. And, and it got me reflecting on playing card games at school with 23 different nationalities and how I used to watch body language and all these little threads in my life had started to come together around how I noticed the world, how I listened to other people, whether that was in facial features, body language, but also in their vocal variety as well as the content of how they expressed their worldview, whether that was through stories or statistics or hypothesis. And then about seven years later, uh, an Irishman, a very good friend of mine, Dermot, said to me, you know, if you can achieve what you want to in your lifetime, it's not worth striving for because I said to Dermot at that stage, you know, I'd love to get 10,000 people to learn how to listen differently in the workplace he said, come back next month, add a zero. And I had no <laughs> idea I was going to get to 100,000. And I thought about it. Next month, he didn't even enter into the discussion. And I said, yeah, I, I figured out how to do 100,000. He said, come back next month, add a zero. And we played this game every month. And I said, but I'm not going to play the game anymore. What's this about? And he said, if you can achieve it in your lifetime, it's not worth your effort. Think about the legacy you're going to create. Think about a body of work that will live beyond you. Think about the impact you're going to create. And roughly at the same time, I was interviewed by Kevin over in Atlanta uh, on, a, on, a, on a podcast, and he said to me, Oscar, even McDonald's 
has more outlets than one. There will be more outlets than you. Have a bigger goal. And the quest for 100 million came up because I have no idea how I'm going to get there, but it does impact my thinking. Mm. It does say how do I express this idea in a way that people can access it when I'm not there. Podcasts are a great format for that. Our online assessment is a great format for that. Our playing cards are a great uh, vehicle for that. Our third book on listening, our Apple award-winning podcast, all these ways of expressing the idea because at the end of the day, only 2% of people in any workplace have ever been trained in how to listen, but 38% of them have been trained on how to speak. Yeah. So there's this really interesting, I wouldn't call it a bias, but I think the listening profession hasn't done a great job of making listening sexy. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's also because it's sort of something that we just do. It doesn't seem as active or in. I don't know, we just listen and then you know, the whole point of listening is so we can speak again. And that's well. Well, that's one worldview, right? The shift of emphasis, uh, isn't it? That yeah. And for me, when I'm doing workshops and I'm running seminars and I'm I'm lecturing on the topic, one thing that's really caught me off guard early on, but now I understand it, is that people say to me, Oscar, look, what you said and the way you present the information really useful. But how you are being with us, your curiosity, your pausing, the way you are listening to the room, I learned more from your example than from your And I thought, hmm. And I thought, mm, there's, a, there's a distinction here between doing listening and being listening. And I think the difference is when you do listening, it's almost like paying attention. You're, you're paying somebody, you owe them an obligation of your attention. But when you are being listening, it's with your whole being. You're listening with your ears, your eyes, your whole nervous system and your body. And when you listen that way, it's much easier. It's not solely a cognitive process because listening happens in the prefrontal cortex, the most modern part of the brain. And it's very taxing on working memory. Mm. And if, if you're only listening in a very cognitive sense where you're only processing language, but you're not being present to the person speaking, because great listeners really influence the speaker. A speaker will speak much more coherently, much more elegantly, much more about what they think and what they mean than a random collection of words because they're trying to catch your attention. So I think being, listening, if you can mm -hmm. be a good listener rather than do good listening. But you have to go through the do to get to the be. Yeah. So that it's, it's, it's a journey of mastery and progress in, in yeah. that way. And the point is simple. A lot of people think listening starts by focusing on the speaker. You actually have to empty your mind be curious and available to the speaker before you can start to listen. And, and most people will go from one lecture to another or one meeting to another, or one context to another, but don't take the moment to go, in this moment, how can I bring my presence here? 
Mm. A lot of a lot of people say the video conference format doesn't work for me, and I go, well, "You're you're not being present. It's a modality. Yes, we don't have rich three dimensional experience, but people will notice your presence even on a video conference if you bring it. But most people don't. Mm. So you've made two distinctions that have really made me think more. I had never really thought about the difference between a mission and a quest in the way Mm -hmm. that you put it, and that distinction between doing, listening, which is sort of just feels like we do it naturally, so why do we need to focus on it, versus being, you know, like a state of being. And you talked about learning to do that. That's also a personal quest then in a way of questing to be more present in the listening. Mm. You also indicated, you know, like you talked about meetings being, you know, finishing earlier or speakers speaking more coherently if they feel like they're listened to. So if we flip that around, what are the problems with not listening well, with just doing listening then? It's interesting. Today, I've walked out of a, a workshop with eighty people, and when we asked them literally to send in a a message on a on an app to say, well, "What's the cost of not listening in in your organisational context?" And no matter where we do this exercise, online, face to face, one industry or another, one culture or another, one nation or another, one profession or another. There's very consistent things that come about. Number one is poor quality work is the first result. The level of thinking is generally more superficial than it needs to be, which results in rework. Oh, you meant that when you said that last week. I actually brought this. Oh, okay. Now I hear you. I'm going to go back and rework that. And there's a friction created in that moment. So so the quality of the thinking is reduced. The second thing that's reduced is the actual time it takes to do it. In that simple example, rather than delivering what I thought I heard a week later, I will be delivering it another week later. And mathematically, Mm. you could say it took us double the time or 100% more time to get to the result. The other thing is... uh, relationships that have friction that's not necessarily required when you don't feel heard you start to question the quality of the relationship and as a result you may hold something back or you may express something in a way you may not normally do they might catch it as frustration they might catch it as intimidation they might catch it as arrogance who knows but if we're both present and we're both genuinely curious because for me, in um, the words of the great Dr. Carl Rogers, who was one of the fathers of the listening movement in the 1950s and 60s and went on to become a professor, he said listening is the willingness to have your mind changed. So he didn't say listening is having your mind changed. It's the willingness. It's turning up in a presence and a curiosity and inquiry to go, oh, what in my assumptions aren't getting us towards the truth rather than my truth. So the costs are multidimensional. It, time, it's quality, it's mm. 
what's the cost to the relationship as well. Mm. And I don't think any of us in our work want to take longer than we need to to get there. We don't want to devalue a relationship we're in. And we always want to seek the truth rather than our truth because purely through the scientific method, we know that our first set of knowledge will evolve over time. It's just the curiosity to be willing to do a few more experiments and challenge our own ways of thinking. Mm. And some of the things that we talk about in our um, research areas as well is the complex is about the complexity of the problems that we're trying to solve and address these days, and that none of us have you know none of us as sort of a, you know, in our disciplinary or subdisciplinary areas have all of the expertise to do that, mm-hmm. and we need to bring that expertise together, and it is in that sense of you know, we're not going to be able to do that effectively if we don't listen well from what you've said. Mm, and, you know, we've in the last month we've had a beautiful example of that with the fields medalists in maths and the work they've done in geometry and how that relates to the geometry of poetry. And they almost dropped out of school, but they were they were rescued by a wonderful educator who understood that their path through the world of math may not necessarily come through the traditional path. So I think, again, it's the curiosity to go, when we're dealing with systemic issues and we listen for systemic issues, the likelihood that a single discipline can solve that, it's an interesting hypothesis to at least test and question. And many of the breakthroughs, whether they are uh, environmental, whether they've got to do with medicine, whether they've got to do with supply chain, all require very divergent thinking. And one of the things, this is especially true of the Western education system, uh, but not limited to that. We are trained to listen for similarity. We're trained to pattern match as opposed to listen for difference. Now, a point I want to make is whether you listen for similarity or difference, neither is correct or incorrect. They're not right or wrong. It's the consciousness and awareness of you as a listener to go in this moment for this situation, for this context, to move forward the outcome we're trying to achieve in a group dialogue, in a one-on-one dialogue, or a system. Is it appropriate for us right now to be listening for similarity? Or is it appropriate for us to be listening for difference? Or are there parts of the meeting where we're going to do both? But rarely do we have a consciousness to do that because our consciousness is reloading evidence in our own argument gun to make sure we're shooting down the other person. And that serves no one. We just have a path of destruction there Mm. where you're, you're, you're trying to explain your truth rather than the truth. And one of the things I would love everybody to explore is how conscious are you right now, even while I'm speaking? Are you listening to pattern match to the evidence, education, cultural background that you have? Or are you open to go, well, this is a perspective I don't normally hear. I wonder what I can take out of this today that I may apply in my research, that I may apply in the way I communicate my research or the way I express 
my inquiry when I go to a conference where other people in my field are presenting papers because I could be listening only to their papers to reinforce my hypothesis. But if they bring something that's divergent evidence and divergent hypothesis, how do I connect that and make that, hmm, wow, that's got me wondering now. And that's why I spend a lot of time listening to podcasts, subscribing to newsletters that I know I will fiercely disagree with in the fields of communication, in the fields of politics, and the fields of system theory, so that I can be that listener that is open to the diverse ideas. Mm. Mm. It doesn't necessarily always be helpful, but there are some times where I can go, hmm, I never thought of expressing it that way. And when they have, it's got me thinking about something in my work in this body of work where we've researched over 20,000 listeners over the last five years to go, well, Oscar, you've got this five levels model listening. Is there a sixth level or should it really be a four level model or is the model foundational or is it a maturity model? And, and these are all tensions you play with when you quest. Mm. When you're on a mission, you're clear. You'll die on that hill for the mission. But I think questing has a, a level of playfulness and curiosity mm. that maybe a mission doesn't. Mm. And, and self-reflection. From you know, like a lot of what you've talked about is that you talk, use the language of self-awareness and that and and you know like you know that ref- self reflection about what do i need to how do i need to listen in this moment am i listening for difference or similarity in it and that contrasts with you know some of the language of academia where we even talk about defending our thesis work you know for for phd students at the end you know and that hmm. defending your work and the uh you know but conferences could be a whole new experience if we did have an audience of people who were deeply listening and deeply curious and open to exploring ideas together in different ways you know then the the classic conference question of you know an interesting talk but have you heard about my good work you know and again in the expression of the language there defend my thesis there is an attachment and an identity that's been created between the person and the idea. And one thing I do very well, and people find it bizarre, it's everything I've just spoke about, the five levels of listening and the quest and all mm. of that, that's not my idea. It is not even my thesis. It is just a thought that's come through my body and my consciousness at that point in time, and I've been lucky enough to catch it. Mm. But is my identity connected to my thesis, that it's my thesis, I would feel that would be incredibly arrogant on my part to think that these kinds of ideas were only my ideas. They're just the ideas that I'm catching and expressing in the moment. But I think there's a playfulness that you have to have when you're seeking mastery and you're seeking to get to the highest simplicity of the expression of the idea. because. My questing is always, I, I know people can talk about cheese and wine, maths and chemistry better than they can speak about listening. There is no taxonomy. There is no construct 
that's universal, like a periodic table of elements, for example, which any, whatever language you is your home language, a periodic table of elements are consistent across language. Even sign language for deaf communities is different across the nations. Mm. And, and my, my quest is how do I make the idea so simple to express that it's, it, it has a greater universality that people can catch the idea and when I say, do you listen for similarities or do you listen for differences, does that instantly make sense to people? In some audience, yes, in some audiences, no. Do you pay attention or do you give attention? Again, when I talk to people about that, they go, mm, wow, I, I've never actually thought about it from that perspective. And people in the audience will audibly sigh and people in the audience will, you can hear the, you feel the air go out of the room and you kind of go, oh, okay, that, that seems to be more elegant than the way I, I said it before. And then talking about the numbers and the neuroscience where you go, look, when it comes to listening, the only numbers that matter, 125, 400, 900. And, and people come to you after the lecture and go, wow, now that I know the numbers, it's, it's a, I understand why I'm distracted. I, I understand why I try to defend my position. And just so we know the numbers, 125 words per minute, a speaking speed on average of somebody who's an English language speaker. 400 words per minute, the speed at which you can listen to me right now. So if you're listening on a podcast, you're completely distracted because you can listen four times faster than what I can speak unless you turn the speed up. Now, if I know the context of the conversation and the language of the speakers, I can listen at two times speed on a podcast and have no problem with comprehension. We know blind people can listen 330 words per minute with complete comprehension. That, 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 sorry, three and a half times speed on a podcast so they, they, because they don't have the visual distraction. So 400 words per minute is your listening speed. So you, you can listen to this interview and be doing something else. And then finally, 900 words per minute is the average thinking speed per minute. Now, if you've done a master's or a PhD or higher degrees, you'll be thinking up to 1,600 words per minute. Therefore, the likelihood the first thing you say is what you actually mean is what you really think, can be anywhere between 5 and 14% of your thinking. So mm. a lot of us, when you come back, Geraldine, to the question, what's the cost of not listening? A lot of us don't realise that we shouldn't be listening only to what people say. We should be listening much more to what people haven't said. Mm. And when you, when you ask a question after someone's presented a paper, Here's the question you should pose to yourself before you ask the question. And this requires a great deal of re reflexivity, you know, thinking about your thinking. Is this question going to progress the knowledge for the person who's presented the paper? Is this question about me and progressing my paper? Or can I pose a question that will advance the knowledge of the room? Now, if your question can pass the final test, you should be able to answer yes to all three of those questions. Then it's a question worth asking in that forum. If it's a question that only advances yours and their hypothesis, it's probably best asked in a one-on-one -on -one context. But in a lot of workplaces or in that classic thesis presentation, pause and ask yourself, 
will this question advance the knowledge of the room rather than just be an intellectual sparring exercise between mm. me and the presenter? And yeah. again, that, that, that takes a playfulness. That, that takes a curiosity that if you've got a thesis deadline or you've got uh, another paper you need to present to another forum, you just might want to validate or invalidate the idea. Mm. But in that moment, my only question to you is, can you ask the question that the room wants to ask rather than you want to ask? Yeah. Because that is about giving attention and that brings great generosity. And I think it forwards whatever field you're in as well. Now, those mm. questions are typically shorter. They're not elaborate multi-part questions. And powerful questions that advance the thinking of the room, linguists tell us, typically should be between eight words, maximum 15. If your questions are longer than that, they're actually statements. Which is a lot of people will be laughing as you say that because that is often the the experience that we have in those settings. Mm. Um, so uh, there was some research I saw published relatively recently, whatever that is, that did validate um, for for I think it was students listening to online lectures twice the speed did just as well in learning um, outcomes and, and grasping what, understanding what was said. So there's some research to back that up. Yeah, and we know in commercial, commercial organisations that they force their staff to do compliance training based on online videos. The majority of those are often played much faster than the original speed and they still can mm. pass the questionnaire yeah. that they have to complete there as yeah. well. So. Thank you for the. I'll be. I'll be curious for you to note down that research and I send will, me a I'll link send to it. it. To you. And uh, that's a good sanity saving strategy, as well as um, one of the positive advantages of online, you know, resources like that. That you can do that sort of time management in a way. Um, mm. You've mentioned your five levels a few times. Would you like to just walk us through those five levels? And this is where we'll leave it now for part one of the conversation with Oscar Tromboli. So I hope you're looking forward to coming back for part two of the conversation where Oscar unpacks the five levels of listening and he also provides some very practical, actionable strategies for how to become better listeners. In the meantime, maybe you want to reflect on what might be your key takeaway from today's conversation. And maybe observe how you go about listening in your own context. You may also be interested in going to www.oscartrimboli.com and taking the listening quiz there. We'll discuss it more in part two. Looking forward to seeing you there. You can find the summary notes and related links for this podcast on www. Dot changingacademiclife.com. You can also subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes and on Stitcher. And you can follow Change Acad Life on Twitter. And if something connected with you, please consider sharing this podcast with your colleagues so that we can widen the conversation about how we can do academia differently. Mm-hmm.